I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, it's Billy Munger here. Hello, it's Johnny Herbert as well. And welcome back to Lift the Lid, the podcast that takes you right around the world of Formula One. And this week, we're back with our team radio episode, so we get to answer all your questions. Me and Johnny always look forward to this one, don't we? Yes, 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 we do. And I've seen a few of them, and uh, it sounds as if this is going to be quite a a good one as well. Going to get a little bit tasty, okay. I think so. I'm ready for it, mate. I'm ready for it, mate. Do you want to kick us off with the first question we've got? Right, okay. So the first one here is from James. On the Sonoda overtake, uh, would he or any other driver try that move if there was gravel, not tarmac runoff? It's a it's a good question, that, because, you know, gravel rather than, you know, tarmac runoff, it always, you know, makes it a much trickier pass because you know you've got no room for error. With you, when you've got tarmac to your left-hand side, the overtake James is talking about, for those of you that don't know, it happened at Barcelona last time out. Joe tried to go around the outside of Yuki Tsunoda, uh, and Tsunoda was deemed to have not left enough space for Joe. He had to take to the escape road and uh, Yuki Tsunoda got a penalty. But it was a bit of a controversial one, wasn't it, Johnny? There was a few mixed opinions on it. Most people thought it was a little bit harsh. Yes, uh, I think the majority of people thought it was was harsh. And uh, the turn one. Now, if you're trying to do an overtake round the outside, you've got to be pretty much at the apex of the right-hander by the side of the other car. You can't come from half a car or more back because there just isn't enough gap between the apex of the right to turn to the apex yeah. of that one because the gap, the guy's got to turn left to go through it. He's ahead. He's got control of it. He's always going to run a little bit wide on the exit of turn one to be tighter for turn two. But anyway, and everybody's aware of that, but of course they all try to play a little bit of a mind game on the radio like Joe Dinson. Oh, he squeezed and forced me off. And you sort of go, yes, 
But if you were in the same, if reversed the roles, it would have been the same situation. You would have done the same thing. That's racing. Yeah, it was one of those overtakes. That's what, but that's what racing's about, hard racing. isn't it? It's it's hard racing. Yeah. That's what you want to see, isn't yes. it? Because you don't want Yuki Tsunoda just to, you know, let him breeze around the outside and give him loads of room for the of sake not. of it and no. give up points. You know, he was in the points. It was a big uh, race for him. He's yeah. putting together a strong race, you know, for him and Alpha Tauri. Yeah, so for me, it was a little bit harsh. If, to answer James's question, if there was gravel there, not tarmac, that would, for me as a driver, that would make me less likely to try and make that pass happen. Like you say, John, it's a difficult one anyways, but if there's gravel there, you know that if that driver does squeeze you and you, you've committed and you can't bail out of it, you're going to potentially lose four or five positions. Yeah, or wall. Yeah. Or barbed wire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you put anything on the edge of a on uh, the edge of a track, the risk goes up much much more. But what's the difference between gravel and a wall, and actually the track limits anyway? Well, there is no difference. You can't sort of take advantage of the the circuit that's there. You can't expect another driver just to move out of the way just because you're breathing down his neck. No, that's not what racing's about. And it's not just the racing that happens in Formula 1. It's what happens in Formula 2. It's what happens in Formula Formula 3, Formula 4, and karting. You know, that's where all these guys learnt their skill. And they're all aware of the little sort of games that you do, the risk that you want to take maybe on a certain occasion. And I think Joe on that occasion was risking it. But for then it to be the other guy's fault, Sonoda, that just seems to be where there's madness. That's not what racing is all about. And sometimes I think it's sort of decisions are made by people who don't quite understand what racing is all about. Yeah, it as does. I see it. Well, we actually have got a follow-up question also on the we take. Yeah, and that's from ENBZ. Okay. So it seems like a username rather than an actual name to me, that one. But um, they've said, F1 needs a serious switch up. We got people who we've got people who don't know racing controlling the race. Get some ex racers with knowledge of the sport in. Yeah, you know that's there's a little bit of truth to that, but equally there are a lot of people in the stewards' office that make those decisions that have got racing experience themselves. Yeah. So yes, it, it's not fundamentally that none of the guys in the stewards' room have not raced before. No, it's quite it's quite an experienced bunch. Of yeah. stewards that are in there. Yes, from various forms of, of motorsport, but there's always a, a driver steward, yeah. an F1 driver steward in that room as well. That's sometimes where I get a little bit frustrated and confused of where they don't seem to have a racy mind. I'm I'm I get a bit confused about it. I don't I don't think I'm being extreme in my views, oh if a car is breathing down your neck, you should let him go. Well, no, that's not what racing is all about. Otherwise, well, you don't race then. <laughs> you just, as soon as a guy tries to make a move, you go, okay, yeah, you can go past. I can't fight you uh, because that's not what is the done thing. It takes all the entertainment yeah. and all the adrenaline away from the sport. if everyone... And the skill. Yeah, and the skill and level. The skill. So that's where sometimes there is a bit of confusion. We saw passes around the outside of Turn 1 at Barcelona, didn't we, that were executed well. well you know, it's not yes. like not seen a were executed pass there, so... We've seen hard but fair racing where the outside overtakers worked. But in that Joe and Sonoda situation for me, it was mm. just never really quite on the overtake. And then he had to bail out of it because he realized that himself. And Sonoda, it was his corner, so he had the right to dictate the line. So it just felt like one of those ones where, you know, we'd, we'd seen 
pretty much a carbon copy of what we saw later in the race, I thought, on lap one, turn one with Max and Carlos. You know, they got... Yeah. Carlos tried to go around the outside of Max, you know, didn't quite happen. He backed out, slotted into second, and it was completely fine. And in my opinion, it was... The, that was a replica of that situation, but Joe just didn't back out and was ex- almost expecting there to be space left when there was Sonoda had the right not to leave the space. No, exactly. And had he earned the uh, overtake? No, he hadn't earned the overtake because the overtake wasn't on at that point. Mm. So he had earned absolutely nothing. But the, he earned uh, Sonoda getting a penalty, which is the most confusing thing out of it. But the question is almost sad as a as a race fan. That he thought, well, actually, it was the wrong. It was the wrong decision. Now, if race fans are thinking it's the wrong decision, who have probably got a bit of, haven't got a racing knowledge, but they understand what racing is all about. Yeah, they just from watching the sport, they've seen just from watching the sport, so they still have the right to have an opinion on, you know, if they think, you know, the penalty was harsh or not, because they would have watched hundreds of overtakes. These race fans, so they know, you know, when a pass doesn't quite happen and when their pass is like done and dusted and then there is contact from a driver where they've they're in the wrong yeah exactly you know when me and you uh dc uh mark and many others who didn't agree with it uh with the decision made and then the fans don't agree with it well i think we're more correct yeah <laughs> than what happened in the steward's room but i don't understand what happened in the steward that's the th- that's the fundamental problem is in that steward's room what what is the mindset the process that they have to go through to make that decision in a racing uh situation do you think there was pressure on them to make that decision because it was so close to the they end of the race shouldn't be they think... shouldn't be billy yeah they shouldn't be should there it's just a logical did he squeeze him off the circuit was he enough around the side of him no he wasn't well okay that was just a racing a racing instant and he and he shouldn't have tried to push uh, push the limits by coming on the radio and telling us that he sort of squeezed me off the circuit because he didn't. He didn't yeah. do that because he hadn't earned it. It feels like sometimes they're they're either eager to make a decision, you know, as soon as possible so they can, you know, confirm the result and get it all sorted, or yeah. they actually spend hours and hours sort of going over like some of these um, these decisions that and it drags on a bit. It feels like there's no happy medium a little bit at the yeah. middle in at at the minute there. No, sometimes, I don't know about you, Billy, but sometimes I feel it's almost like they've got to blame someone. But you haven't always got to blame someone. It's called a racing incident. It's a called a race, it's racing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Full stop. Anyway, we could go on about on and on about this one. But I yes. Yeah. I think I think, yeah, we, we share your um frustrations a little bit, I'd say, is the, the the end point to wrap that one up. Sometimes it is frustrating when the fans and a lot of ex drivers have the same opinion, but the stewards have yeah, decided to give a penalty out. Yeah, but let's hope that they get on top of that. Let's hope that they, you know, listen to the fans' feedback and you know exactly they can you know, they can make some changes to maybe, like you say, maybe get some more drivers involved if possible. Yeah, maybe. But I think they've got to learn from from what happened in in in, uh, in Barcelona. You can't just give uh, a penalty to another driver just because he was in the wrong part of the circuit. Well, sorry, he wasn't in the wrong part of the circuit. The other guy overtaken was in the wrong part of the circuit. So there was, shouldn't have been a penalty either way. Full stop. Yeah. Moving on. Moving on, Johnny. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's get let's get back into something a bit different, shall we? Yeah, let's get one. Yeah, so I've got David here asking, uh, on the Brad Pitt F1 uh, film, how long would it realistically take to learn how to drive 
an F1 car? Well, it depends. That's a very broad mm, question, isn't it? Because, very. You know, you could drive an F1 car if you could drive a road car fairly easily at probably 30 mile an hour. You might, you know, spin off a few times, but, you know, you know, you could get a car around. But if you want to drive an F1 car on the limit, uh, probably about, what, 15 years, 10, 15 years? <laughs> That's probably about right, yes. And then it's down to what experience you have as a driver as yeah. well. Driving a, a road car is something something, something else. Driving a yeah. Ferrari Porsche road car is something completely different if you were driving a Ford Focus, for example. So it's the experience that you have is then how your brain... Because I always think the the only way you can jump into a Formula 1 car and actually control it is you've got to have the fastest brain speed to be able to slow it down as much as you as you possibly yeah. can. Now, if you can achieve that, right. you'll be able to drive it. But if you can't slow it down, it will take control of the of the whole situation. And basically, you will not be at one with the car at all, and you'll be struggling. No, the car will be driving you at that yes, point. Yes, pretty much so. Yeah, that's that's the key thing there, isn't it? With the speed, like if you. If you, I remember being in a race car, you know, when I'd like, you know, you jump up a category, for example, coming through the ranks of junior single seaters. So you're in, do a season in F4, next season you jump into an F3 car and the first couple of laps, you're like, Jesus, everything's happening so much, you know, a little bit yeah. quicker now. So you, it takes you a few laps for you to readjust your, your brain. So, you know, the fact that things are coming at you a bit faster, that you can carry more speed through corners, but then within a few laps, um as you're coming through the junior ranks you then start to like you say everything starts to slow down again doesn't it and it starts to yeah. then feel like that's a very comfortable speed and you're it's just what you're you become used to it and then you you're not likely to make these silly mistakes or you know to get panicked or anything like that because you you know what to expect and yeah. what speed it's coming up at yeah so so really the question can brad pitt drive a formula one car well yes he can drive it but yeah. driving it and just sort of poodling along is very different than going at 200 miles an hour. And it won't look good on the movie, that. <laughs> no, it, it, won't, won't. it won't look good on the movie if we're no, doing 30 an hour in a Formula <laughs> 1 car. Yeah. No, it won't. So, yes, you can drive one, but driving it decently, that's the that's the difficult, that's the real challenge. Yeah, well, when you think think about it, you know, you the, to be honest, the, the earliest someone's ever been in Formula One and actually raced is, you know, Max Verstappen. And he was, what, around 17 years old, I believe? Yeah. When he jumped he into was. a Formula One car for the first time for, for Toro Rosso. So, yep. you know, and he started karting probably when he was about, well, Max probably started when he was about four years old, I would have thought. Or, you know, yes. he started a few years before most people do. So even at that point, you're talking he's had probably at least 10 plus years of, you know, building up that you know that confidence with the speed to get to formula one so it, it's no easy task no no it's not no it's not let's see on that one i'm looking forward to that f1 film and eventually when it comes out but yeah i feel like there's a lot of moving parts on that one to make that you know a lot success yeah right we got a question here from from Gemma, uh and it's danny rick has been announced to be doing alternate commentating with espn for free races this year is that the end of his driving career? It's a big, big question there Good from question. Gemma. Good question. Good question. What are your initial thoughts when you hear that, mate? Well, when I when I read that, you go, yes. <laughs> Very yes. quite, quite simply, yes. Um, really? Well, again, it goes back to the normal thing. Take away this ESPN uh, commentator. 
what uh, seat is available? And who would take on Daniel Ricciardo? That's the question. The Vries has been the only mention. That's the only mention. That's the only one. But then it goes back. We have discussed this before, Billy, I know. He's right. Why do you want to go into an Alpha Tower? He just wants to be in Formula One still, I think. I think from seeing Danny Ricciardo around, you know, seeing him around the paddock and seeing, you know, he feels like, it feels like to me he's got some comp- some confidence back, some energy back. It feels like he looks a bit less drained than when he was at McLaren and he was getting, you know, beaten on a regular basis by Lando. And I just wonder whether, you know, sometimes you don't know what you've got until you, you know, you leave it. And I feel like we've, we've hit Danny. It's like he's left Formula One. He's made that decision. And part of me thinks he's sat there going, ah, oh, what have I done? I need to be driving in Formula One still. So I, yeah. I still have hold the opinion that if there was a seat that came up for him, you know, he would he would still have a crack at it, even if it wasn't a right. seat where he was likely to win races. Here's my thing: is because yeah. when he was when he was at Red Bull or, and decided not to continue there, yeah, you know, he still would have won races, and who knows? Everything may have gone absolutely perfectly right, and he may have won a world championship. We never never know. So then he yeah. made that decision to go to Renault, and. He went there. It didn't quite work out. He was a bit frustrated because he wasn't given the opportunity to win to win races. So he made another yeah. move and he tried to go fresh to McLaren, which didn't work out because obviously the car was a little bit more difficult to drive. Lando was doing a great job in it. And we didn't see... Yeah, he the, won one race, didn't he? He won one, one race, but it was all circumstances in it. Yeah. But, but, but he was still able to be in the right place at the right time. But on pure pace, we haven't seen the Daniel Ricciardo from the Red Bull times. Now, when he did the Renault move and it didn't quite work out with him and then he wanted to move on to McLaren, what does that tell me? Well, that tells him he still wants to be in a car that can give him a chance to win races again. Yeah, I agree with that. Of course, okay. of course he's going to want to be in a car that can win races. No driver's not going to want that, I think. But where is that car for him? What, right now? Well, yeah. Where is that car? I don't that's... think that's an option for him anymore. If I'm completely honest, yeah, I don't. He's not going to be going to back to McLaren because they're very happy of Oscar Piastri and Lando. Mm-hmm. Alpine have got you know two French drivers, you know, young, lot of ex- the experience in Formula One and Ocon and Gasly. The the top three teams, you know, I've, you could maybe say if Checo fell off a cliff that you know Red Bull might just take him back. Because he it worked well for them to you know for Danny Rick and Red Bull with him there he obviously won a lot of races with them, but I I really think it's Red Bull Red Bull if Checo really falls off a cliff or it's AlphaTauri if De Vries is not living up to expectations. Other than that, I I don't know where he goes. No, that that see that's the one that is the is the only one that makes sense to me. You, you wouldn't want to go anywhere else because you know you're not going to get a chance. But if you can possibly hang on and check it sort of all falls apart, then that opportunity might come his way. Then it's worthwhile. I know it's Max and I know he's been up against Max. Max is better now than he was before by a considerable margin. Oh, but if you're Danny Ricardo, there's no way that you don't take that on full, you know, wholeheartedly and go, I'm going to find a way to beat Max Verstappen because this car is unbelievable. And that to me, is the only thing I can see is waiting for, is that chance. I just don't, in my mind, I just don't get why you'd want to go in a car that wouldn't give you that opportunity. What's the point? You might as well go and do yeah. sports cars. 
and try and win them off, for example, and win something, win something big. Yeah. Outside the bubble. And he's, you know, he's done so well in this bubble. He's so, he's such a popular, likable uh, man. And we all want him to do well, all of us. But there is a scenario at the moment where winning doesn't look as if it's going to be coming his way in the next the next year or so, unless one driver, one driver completely um, falls off that cliff that you were talking about. And that's Sergio Perez and, and the Red Bull. Otherwise, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it because I just know as my, when I was getting to the end of my career, I just decided I wasn't enjoying it enough and I, I wasn't going to be in a place where I could achieve, achieve those race wins. So if I can't, then I might as well do something else and, and enjoy it. Yeah, I do agree. I think, you know, like I say, Alpha Tari is a seat that I think is more more likely that he could, you know, get for where he's at in his career. And, but equally, with what he's done in his career already in Formula 1, he, you know, I agree that other options out there would probably be, you know, something he'd get more enjoyment out of, I think. I think he would enjoy doing Le Mans, doing wet, yeah, doing IndyCar. I can see him doing that stuff. So it's an interesting question there from, from Gemma. The, com- the commentating side of things obviously you know brings this to the, the forefront because it makes you think that you know that he's not really realistically going to be back driving anytime soon because it makes you think that his full focus isn't on Formula One from a driving point of view now he's now d- adding these other things into the mix yeah which is always a sign that you know maybe he's he's considering you know stopping full time and moving on to something else yeah exactly and again you know that uh commentating role is something that he would do very well at because his his character is perfect for it his experience is perfect for it and i think people would find him very very interesting as as we all do yeah i completely agree right we're gonna take a a short break and when we're back we're gonna yeah be continuing to answer some of your questions 
but I think we all know the the situation where you know he had a, brought a lot of sponsorship to to Haas, and that was able to you know develop the car and put them in a good window, and that was a big factor into why he got signed in the first place. The fact he's lost his court battle is obviously you know not ideal for him returning to Formula One, but equally I sit there and think you know we've got talk of new teams being you know coming into the world of Formula One, yeah, and with a new team being entered into the sport. It, you know, it's gonna. That's gonna need financial backing, isn't it? It's gonna need those teams are gonna need money invested in into them in order to get them up to speed, so they're not miles off the pace. Like when we've had a lot of uh, teams in Formula One before that haven't quite, you know, had the backing, and it, they've just plotted round at the back and struggled. So I do think someone like a Mazepin, you know, would be eyeing up one of those new teams if they, you know, if he gets the chance, and thinking that could be his way back into the sport. Yeah, again, I, I I feel that would be the only way he'd be able to get back into the sport because even if we take the new teams out of it, you've always then got well, who would, where would he, where would he fit in? And of course, and the thing is, I think you know very well, Billy, and everybody else, you know, this sport moves on so so quickly, and you get forgotten very very quickly. Um, well, we don't see him at the racetrack, we don't see him around, we don't see his face, so that that then pushes you further and further away from the sport itself so yeah. it's it's always going to be a little bit more difficult i think to to be able to get back onto the grid but the new teams yeah. is maybe may an option yes that's that's the the only thing and in fact as well it's i think it's worth mentioning that you know when he was at hats with mick schumacher as his teammate mick was you know yeah. performing him in yeah. that car and now mick schumacher even with the name and reputation that he's got you know, through his dad, Michael, he's not on the grid currently as well because that's how competitive and tight the world of yeah, Formula One exactly. is, you know. You have to deliver performance. So as much as, you know, having good financial backing is a huge factor in Formula One, and we've seen that from previous drivers on the grid, not just the likes of Mazepin, that have helped fund teams to give them the best chance of building a competitive car, talent is a huge factor as well because there's only currently 20 seats on the Formula One grid. So... It does beg the question that if Mick Schumacher has now not made the cut in Formula One and he was outperforming Mazepin, you know, is he is he right? Is he sort of deserving of a spot on the grid? Which you know is is something to be debated. Yeah, and and it's difficult, Billy, because we we've just been talking about Danny Rick, and we're almost talking about Danny Rick probably doesn't have a proper chance of getting on the grid. That's Danny Ricardo. We're talking. He's won multiple Grand Prix. Where... Yeah, Monaco. but it, there is a there is a point where things just don't fit, and I think Mazepin is probably in that in that very similar situation as you said about Mick Schumacher. Same thing. He was quicker than him, but actually he's not on the grid either. So you're right. It's it's why why would it why would someone want to have him on board other than as you said, just trying to help fund fund the team in the early days. Yeah. That would be the only, the only reason, I suppose. Yes, it's a tricky one. Unfortunately. A tricky one indeed. Yeah. Um, next question we've got is from Dan, uh, and it's James Key to Alfa Romeo. Good move. Obviously, Alfa Romeo is, you know, soon to be uh, under a different banner, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, obviously, with Audi uh, coming into play. Do you think that's a preemptive move that, you know, he's you know almost trying to get in there ahead of time to get set up in the team when Audi come into play? Yeah, I, th I think there seems to be a, a, a certain amount of that. I suppose the one 
issue that we might sort of say, well, it's is it a, is it a strange move because the McLaren is not the best car, and this is a James Key car, and it's probably not the best car at the moment. They've had this sort of upward trend, and then it sort of stagnated a little bit uh, this season, and then he's he's been moved on from McLaren, and now obviously he's going back going back to another team, um, which will be Audi. So it's it's sort of I suppose there's there's a little bit of a surprise because I suppose the expectations will be very high when that car uh, hits the ground the Audi, um, and James will be a very very influential man in in the direction that they go with the basically the design of the car. Is he the right man for it? For it? Well, I suppose you could say well he's got to prove it. This will be the proof in the pudding. If that car doesn't work, then. You know, it's going to be almost like curtains, curtains for James as far as in the big teams uh, go. But, you know, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see because, again, if I just base it on what I've seen this year with the McLaren, it hasn't been the the best, nicest car to drive. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of tend to agree at the minute that, you know, it's not, you know, they're not taking someone who's like an Adrian Newey who's absolutely, you know, crafting masterpieces when it comes to the Formula 1 cars he's, you know, designing at the minute. Like you say, that McLaren... It hasn't been the standout performer, so you you would think that maybe Audi would be looking elsewhere. But in the world of Formula One, it's hard to to poach the top guys because you yes, know, sure that they're, they're at the teams, they're delivering, they've got everything you know set up in the way they want it. You know, if Adrian knew he was to move to another Formula One team, I'm sure there's a lot of people that he works with that he'd want to take with him, and it's not as easy as just. You know, you can't just all the whole design team just get up and leave to another team. You know, you've got contracts in in play. You know, you've got time that you've got to sit out on the sidelines. Um, if you've been, you know, close to the developing new cars, where you need to, you know, can't take too much IP and info with you to these other teams uh, nowadays. So it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, he's got time time on his side. You yeah, know, before that sort of Audi hits the hits the ground. So I suppose that that will be a very Give us a very good indication. We'll give him give him time to do the right things and possibly get the right people around him to help that journey uh, to, you know, hopefully be straight straight away to winning ways. That would be the idea, anyway. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see. Right. So next one I've got here from Tim. Oh yes, I like this one. Esports, a pandemic flash in the pan or the future of racing? I did a lot of esports during lockdown. I tried. Did Badly. you try? I try. Have you? Well, you've seen. You've seen what I'm like. I've, I have seen you on a sim. <laughs> you mate. have seen yeah. me on a sim. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, go on. You you did a lot of it. Yeah, I, I did a lot. To be fair, in lockdown, I did a lot of streaming and sort of you know did a lot of i racing and did a few charity races when they were race, doing some races for the NHS and some yeah some bits and pieces. I did really enjoy it. But equally, driving a simulator is nothing like driving a race car. You know, there's when I did the competitive online races, okay, there's a bit of adrenaline that comes into the system and you get a bit competitive and you want want to win like you do in a, in a racing car. But equally, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, G-forces, there's nothing like that, you know, it's, it's a very different world. So for me, I, I was kind of expecting once we went back to normal racing that esports would sort of fade back away from the, you know, the peak mm-hmm. that it went up to in lockdown. Um, I still think there's a place for it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Still definitely think there's a place for esports and, and that side of things. You know, it gives a lot of, you know, people that are, that love their motorsport an opportunity to 
show driving skills and prowess but you know without having to afford crazy amounts of money to go and race nowadays um like anyone can do it which i think is great the great thing about esports is that anyone with pedals and cereal can you know go and compete against whoever they want around the world and show what they can do but for me uh, um answering tim's question i think it's kind of you know it's faded back down to a level now where i don't see it you know going back up to pandemic levels yeah yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see what it is. I, I agree with you. I think it's got a place. Uh, we know the gaming industry is humongous, humongous, um, and because of that, that is where there will always be uh, a place for it. As far as if there is ever this dream that an esports uh, racer can go into F one, uh, I don't see it personally. I know there are certain esports drivers that have actually done a bit of karting some of them have done yeah. a little bit of car racing but very very limited yeah actually i know um james baldwin who was an esports driver he actually competed in british gt and gt3 yeah. and and did a good job in that to be You're fair right. there is definitely an element of you know some of the skills definitely you know translate across but equally like you say that what the one thing esports racing doesn't prepare you for is the feeling of actually driving at 150 plus mile an hour and you know getting used to that speed it's the same sort of idea of what we spoke about earlier with the brad pitt situation you know yeah exactly knowing knowing the inputs you need to put in to be quick on a simulator is great and a lot of that will translate across to a race car but being able to do that in real time when things are flying at you you know and the fear factor and And the the fear fear factor and there's no reset button or anything like that that that's where you know it, it changes a lot of things yeah, he does big time, big time. So, yeah, I'm going to quickly move on, Billy. Yeah. This one here. Who is the best driver outside of F1? This is from Thomas. Best driver outside of Formula One. I mean, it, it it's a tricky one because, you know, you, you could look to the likes of IndyCar or, you know, drive, top drivers in Le Mans or Formula E. But for me, I'm probably going to maybe look more to a bit of youth um and i'm going to look to the formula 2 grid yeah that's where i'm looking for me there's a couple that i think you know have got a shot of formula 1 ollie behrman is one for me you know he's impressed me a lot young young british he's driver he's impressed me a lot he's first got, season the one thing he's got is raw pace that's something that you know i've known ollie for a, a good few years so i used to coach him in go-karts back in you know right. back in 2016 i used to you know coach him um a while back um i, I am right it's his first season yes First season of Formula 2, now, yeah. He only now, did one that's impressive. Formula 3, yeah. Yeah, then this is impressive, you're right. Because we've got Paul Scher. I do like Paul Scher. He's only 18 years yeah. old. And he's really, really good. He's, but he's in his second season. You've got yeah. Frederick Vesti, who's leading the championship at the moment, in his second season. Yeah. Beerman, uh, that, Ollie, I have to say, is pretty impressive. Three wins this year. Yeah. Very, very impressive. And both the races at Baku, you know, Baku. street circuit. Yeah, got yep. both victories, which doesn't happen in Formula 2 too often with the sort of reverse grid sprint race that they have. Yep. You know, the positive thing he's got as well, he's part of the Ferrari Academy. He's an Essex boy. He's an Essex boy. Yes, he is. A Chelmsford <laughs> lad. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think out of those three, because I think the the, the Theo and Frederick, uh, Frederick have done a very good job. Um, yeah. But coming in your first season and doing the job he's doing, he's fourth in the championship, I think, yeah. at the moment. And he's getting up. He's moving up quite quickly. Yeah, and equally, like I say, at the minute, one thing Ollie's always had is raw pace, but he has made a few mistakes. I'm thinking to Monaco this year, he crashed in practice. 
and sure. then that put him on the back foot because he hadn't done many laps around Monaco for qualifying. And then if you qualify bad in Monaco, he basically scored, you know, next to no yeah. points that weekend. So there's definitely still mistakes he's making that he needs to, you know, iron out. But last time out in Barcelona, I was commentating on the F2 yeah. and he had a clean weekend, you know, stuck it on pole position, you know, a really good lap in qualifying in the, the feature race, controlled it start to finish and yeah. got points in the, in the sprint race. You know what I like about that? You said he had a difficult Monaco and sometimes trying to bounce back from a from a bit of a sort of a bad weekend is very, very hard. But to do it in the next one, bang, pole position and win a race as well, yeah. that shows that there's a lot of mental strength uh, that is going to be very uh, positive for other teams looking at him, of course, he's at the Ferrari Academy anyway. But uh, yeah, I think he's he's uh, he's got a lot, a lot, a lot, of, a good future. Good future. Yeah, he definitely, definitely has. Um, yeah, that was a really interesting set of questions there, guys. Really enjoyed that one. As always, yeah. Yeah, thanks again for everyone that sent in questions uh, and feel free to to keep them coming in, guys, because, you know, we're, we're here to answer as many as you've got doesn't matter if you think they're stupid or you think that they might be you know easy questions you know actually a few easy questions now and then would be very handy and some stupid ones as well and some, I like those as well. As some well. really stupid ones as well difficult ones yes yeah <laughs> uh, but fa- yeah thanks again from both me and johnny yeah we really enjoy doing these team radio episodes yeah we do we look forward to, to answering some more of your questions in the next episode so for for now it's uh, goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care guys see you all soon This has been a Soapbox London and SBX Studios production. Our executive producers were Rowan Wilkinson and Andy Bell. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.